0: Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. Our hope is that this sermon will instill you with a profound sense of God's love and that you might receive and reflect his glory to your community. From St. Mark's Gospel, Jesus said, and the two shall become one flesh. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. We had so much fun in our sermon series about James. We're going to pick up this morning for the next several weeks and shift a little bit and focus on the gospel lesson from Mark. And the series is going to be, ready for this? The hard sayings of Jesus. Now, if you are, have been fed your whole lives a steady diet of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, Uh, buckle in. (laughs) Because he is meek and mild, but he's also the Lion of Judah. And he sometimes says things which cause offense, or at the very least, cause us to be challenged. And so this morning, the first zinger we're going to talk about today, the first challenging words from Jesus concern the topic of divorce. Simple, easy, right? You know, it's funny. I was thinking about this this morning in the adult forum. You read this text, and at the very end of it, it talks about Jesus bringing children to them. Every time I go to an Episcopal church or hear somebody preach on this text, and everyone's going, Woo, what's he talking about with this divorce thing? Almost inevitably, the preacher preaches on bringing the children to him. They punt, they avoid the question. And so, friends, as your priest, as your pastor, we're going to hit it. You ready? And I'm going to tell you this as full disclosure. My parents, as many of you know, my parents are divorced. They divorced when I was 18 years old. My younger brother and my younger sister are both divorced from their families. And so I know firsthand, like lots of you do, the hurt and the pain and the tragedy that divorce causes. So for God's sake, hear me. I am not speaking to you with a pointed finger. In fact, I never do you know you know that over 50 percent over 50 percent of marriages end in, divor- in divorce but you know even so i've never heard someone say i'm going to get married and i'm probably going to get divorced too you ever heard that i never have i have i will confess i have been to marriages before not that i celebrated but that i've attended where i thought to myself well this is going to be a long shot that i will ha- will admit I've never taken bets, I'm not a betting man, but, and it's kind of one of those things, but a lot of times when, when kids get married, younger kids get married, it's because the women think they're going to change the man, and the man thinks the woman is never going to change. <laughs> so, nobody ever enters into a marriage intending to be divorced. Why? Well, because we're made in God's image and as a result we believe, like God does, that marriage is intended to be permanent. And this becomes a supremely pastoral matter. What do I mean? Well, it means this, that when it comes to divorce, when it comes to divorce, I'll just be blunt, the details matter. The details matter. And in fact, you may not know this, but if a couple comes to me and wants to be married when they've been married before, I have to do my interview, my FBI inquest maybe, and, and do a, an interview of them and then get permission from the bishop. Why? Because the details matter. There are exceptions to the rule. won't get into that today. All I want to say is this, that divorce is a profoundly pastoral question. It is not the unforgivable sin. It does not mean that your life as a Christian is over. But I will say this. If this bugs you and something sticks in your craw and you want to know, come talk to me. I'm your priest and I'll give you the straight answer. I'll give you the best answer that I can. And so with that aside, I'm not going to talk today necessarily about divorce per se, but I'm going to talk about why Jesus is so insistent about it. In fact, not just Jesus, the entire scripture. Why is the Bible whoops, why is the Bible so insistent about divorce in the first place? Well, two points. First, I'm going to look today at the nature of Christian marriage. That's point number one. And then secondly, I want to look at what we can do to strengthen it. So point one, what is the nature of Christian marriage? That's really the underlying theme. And then secondly, how do we get this thing to stay on? (laughs) Secondly, how do we strengthen our marriages? So the first thing I'm going to look at today is the nature of Christian marriage. Let me show you something. Mark tells us something very interesting. It says that the Pharisees came to Jesus in the midst of a great crowd. And he tells us why. To try to trick him. To put him on the spot. And they ask him in a a situation actually not unlike this one. People are gathered around. Jesus is preaching and teaching. And some people show up and say to him, hey Jesus, I got one for you. Is it right for a man to divorce his wife or not? Now, just realize something important. There's divorced people in the crowd. And so it was as uncomfortable then as it would have been today, and deliberately so. The the Pharisees say it, verse 2, in order to test him. So what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus does what Jews and Christians and you and I are called to do when we are confronted with a question about a truth claim, anything. What does Jesus do? He goes to the Bible. He goes to Scripture and explains what it says. Now, let me just stop there for a second and just make an obvious point here in case you're thinking, oh, yeah, there he goes to the Bible. Well, we've got... But everybody, friends, everybody goes to some source of authority in this question, and really every question, Every person you speak to, whether it's divorce, gay marriage, abortion, whatever the hot button topic might be, that's a lot in one sentence, isn't it? (laughs) Whatever that topic might be, people go to a standard, to a source of authority upon which to base their truth claim. For example, with marriage. If your view of marriage is all about personal self-expression and personal fulfillment, then the basis for your worldview will be your choice of a mate. And if that mate no longer satisfies your fulfillment and your choice, it's time for number two. Or, if you're like most people in our culture today, most people in our culture today take what I call, and I made this up so you can use it, take a consumerist view of marriage. Turn on the TV and watch Oprah. Is she even on anymore? I don't even know. But watch any news show about Dr. Phil, right? All of these people take a consumerist view of marriage. What do I mean by that? Well, you marry a person for what that person can do for you. She makes me laugh. He makes me happy. She's a good cook. He's a great provider. Man, friends, so many marriages fall apart because of the consumerist view, because it falls apart when the marriage no longer works for me. She's not the girl she used to be. He's not the man I married. You get my point. You with me? The point I want you to see here is that everybody, Christian and non-Christian, I don't care who you are, makes decisions about marriage and, frankly, everything else based upon a standard which defines your worldview. Christians, we go to the Bible. Because the Bible, I'll submit to you today, always gets it right. And because the Bible is the only worldview, listen, which does not contradict itself. I did not always believe that. In seminary, when I taught scientific, mes- uh, scientific uh, the- uh, methodology to gra- undergrads when I was in grad school, I came to believe this to be true, that the Bible is the only worldview which only gets it, always gets it right and does not contradict itself. Why? It's true, it's God's word. And so the Pharisees, come back to the story, the Pharisees ask Jesus a question. Hey, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And where does he go? He goes to the Bible. Jesus says, well, what did Moses say? What he's referring to is Moses wrote the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books of the Bible. Jesus refers back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Jesus references Scripture. And then Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart, your sin, your brokenness, Moses wrote the commandment for you. But from the beginning, listen, God made them male and female. Genesis chapter 2. So Jesus refers back to two scriptural texts, Deuteronomy 24 and Genesis 2, to the story of Adam and Eve. We're going to dive into that for a second. Let me show you something. If I said to you, marriage is based upon Adam and Eve, what would you say? Most people have a working understanding of the Adam and Eve story as something like this. God creates a man and he's in, the, he's in the garden and he's lonely. And so God says, all right, uh, I got an idea. And he puts Moses his, to sleep and, and he cuts open his side and he pulls out a rib and then he covers the hole back up and he makes Eve out of a rib, out of spare parts. That's what it that sounds like, right? Most people understand this text about Adam and Eve and the creation narrative that somehow God makes Eve out of a spare part, out of a rib. But there's something, two things going on here that are fascinating. First, Adam, the name Adam, Hadam in Hebrew, is always prefaced with the word the, the Hadam. And Hadam means the man of red clay. Why? When God created the Hadam, he took dirt and breathed in it, and the man came to life. The Hadam, this person, it means the person, the being of red clay. The English refers to him as a him, refers to Adam as a him, but listen, Adam could have been an it, the person of red dirt. Secondly, this is more interesting, God takes the Hadam, and he removes, the Hebrew word is the word Selah. And it's translated into English as rib. But the word can also be translated, listen to this, half or side. So here's another way to read the Adam and Eve story because it has an incredible importance for the question for today. God takes the Hadam, this first human being, and cuts him in half. And the two, one, becomes two. Two complementary halves. God creates male and female. Two halves of a whole. You see it? Yes? And the point I'm trying to make here, what Genesis chapter 2 is asserting and what Jesus is quoting is the absolute complementarity of male and female. Not just anatomically, that's pretty obvious, but socially, intellectually, spiritually, in all things. Two halves of a whole. And what the Bible claims, and what Christian marriage is all about, is that in the act of marital sexual union, a man and a woman, two halves, are joined together. Not just physically, there is that, but spiritually and emotionally, in every single way. And listen to what Jesus says. The two, the man shall cleave to his wife, and the two become one. You see it? Adam is one, broken into two. When a, human, a man and woman get married, the two become one. And it makes sense if you think about it. If you've been married any length of time, what do you say? You refer to your wife as your better half, right? And why wouldn't we? We're made in God's image. And, and, and in fact, I would submit to you this, that human, married man and a woman in marriage, two in one, is sort of like the Trinity. In a sense, God is three in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. United in one God, well, marriage between man and a woman, Jesus points out, is symbolic of the very nature of the Godhead itself. And not only that, Paul points out in Ephesians chapter 5, again, a man, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul writes, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to ready for this? Christ and his church. Let that sink in for a minute. (laughs) That your marriage between a a man and a woman, husband and wife, reflects the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in some supernatural spiritual way. But it also illustrates, friends, Jesus's relationship to the church, to you. And and it's a practical matter. Okay, Rodriguez, boil it down for me. Here you go. You ready? Next time you want to pick a fight with the spouse, next time you want to watch the Falcons and just want to watch the Eagles or something, next time you want to pick a a fight with your spouse, just stop and remember that your Christian marriage reflects the nature of God, the Holy Trinity, and also reflects the relationship of Jesus to his church. It's profound. Two independent persons, man and woman, becoming one. For those of you who are married or who have been married or have been around somebody who is married, did you ever notice that you become more and more like your spouse over time? Did you ever notice that? (laughs) That they begin to rub off on you? Yes? I've been married to my wife, Kathleen, for 22 years. I have become much more patient, God knows, (laughs) more willing to listen, and frankly, just nicer. I've become these things because I have been around my wife who exhibits these qualities. I've learned something, being married to her. I don't, I don't always, I do not always have to solve problems. I can just hear a person out. That took some time to figure out. And by the way, guys, if your wife says to you, honey, I don't want you to solve the problem. Just listen to me. Just listen to her. Kathy would tell you that that being married to me has made her a stronger person, has made her more confident, has made her more resistant to other people's criticisms. You want to know why? tell you why. Because we've become one flesh. We are two halves of a whole. And so here's the question for you. What about you? How has your husband, ladies, changed you? Fellas, how has your wife changed you? We are each individuals. We are each individually fully human. But marriage, in a husband and wife, the two become one flesh. That is the nature and grounding of the nature of Christian marriage. And that leads me to my second point. If that's true, I submit to you that it is, then what can we do to strengthen it? Well, you know, the Bible, the Bible is a supremely practical book. The Bible is supremely practical. Any person who says to you the Bible is outdated or irrelevant or not not applicable to a 21st century culture doesn't know what they're talking about. The Bible says a lot about marriage. Too much to get into today. But I will give you one example, just one. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says this. You want to know how to make your marriage stronger? Fellas, buckle in. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Did you hear that? <laughs> Husbands, love your wives as, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, here's the obvious question. What did Jesus do for the church? He died for it. He died for you. He died for me. And because Jesus dies for you and for me on the cross to pay for our sins, for one reason and one reason only, that was to put your welfare ahead of his own. But that's what love does. That's what Christian love does. The real kind, it puts the other first. Love is a verb that puts the needs of another ahead of its own. So fellas, you guys, married men in the audience here today, You will probably never have to die, literally, for your wife, unless you're like at Wawa, somebody pulls a gun or something, I don't know. You will probably never have to die physically for your spouse, but that doesn't get you off the hook. (laughs) What it means is that for you, fellas, to live your life, not for you, but for your wife and your children, to put their welfare first, that is one of several keys To a healthy, strong, vibrant, flourishing marriage. That you are members of one another. You are one flesh. The next time you want to complain about your wife, stop. Just stop. And say to yourself, I'm joined to her. She is part of my body. Paul says, what man would hate his own flesh? It's a good question. Ladies, the next time you want to be critical of your husband or point out his faults to your friends, just stop and remember that you guys... Are one flesh. You're on the same team. It's profound. It's powerful. But I'll tell you what, if you really believe that, and it is true, and you live it because it's true, your marriage will flourish. And in so doing, you will give glory to the God who created you. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word, which is consistent and clear and challenging in its view of human nature and today in its view of marriage. Lord, we thank you for the profound gift of marriage which reflects your nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Give us strength and courage to support our marriages and to encourage others to do the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.